0: This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com/slash gist news. It's Thursday, January 17th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, Washington Post headline. She wields the knife. Wait, I thought Nini already lost in the last chance kitchen on Top Chef. Oh no, these aren't the restaurant wars. The Bush is not amused. This is the very real issue of power, and politics, and Pelosi. She wields the knife. Here's the full headline. She wields the knife. The House Speaker's confrontational approach to the President has united Democrats and cheered liberals, but it carries risks ahead of the 2020 campaign. Risks. Let us check in on those risks. So... The article says in the two weeks since she's reclaimed the speaker's gavel, Pelosi has moved aggressively to leverage her decades of congressional experience to needle, belittle and undercut Trump with swipes at his competence and even his masculinity. Just one quibble. And it's the word belittle. To belittle would be to make someone little. This is more of a relittle, i.e. revealing How small and petty and little Trump naturally is. But let us continue with the article. But Pelosi's challenge to Trump also comes with a degree of risk for her and for Democrats. The more she becomes the face of Trump's opposition, the more Republicans will probably use her unpopularity nationally to label vulnerable House members as Pelosi clones. A potentially potent line of attack against sitting lawmakers who cast votes in lockstep with party leaders. No, no. What if Republicans use Pelosi to smear the Democratic Party? What would that sound like? Pelosi's wrong. It's time to change Washington. The Republican National Committee is responsible for the content of this advertising. Well, it might sound like that, or it might sound like this. In Washington, he'd be one of Nancy Pelosi's sheep. And if those ads were taken out throughout the country, what would be the result electorally? CNN can now project that Democrats will win the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Jake, uh, this is a huge win for the Democrats, a huge setback. For the president and for the Republicans. Uh, it it is. And this is. Why do I think that Pelosi fears the prospect of getting smeared in a Republican ad like Giuliani fears getting booked on cable news? I understand that conflict equals drama, but I do not think the particular... Conflict that Nancy Pelosi is feeling is an internal one. Ooh, do I continue to oppose Trump quite forcefully and effectively? The Democrats saddled Trump with owning the shutdown. Schumer did that in the Oval Office meeting. It was the most effective piece of political jujitsu I may have ever seen. Sure, the opponent was a man baby, but it was still a vicious takedown. And since then, I do not, I honestly do not think Pelosi has misstepped once, not that I could see. Trump seemed not to have done much wrong right in the meantime so if there's any conflict it's all external believe me Pelosi is not second guessing all she has done to cause the president to tear up the itinerary she put together in a fit of peak presidentialness so tonight on top chef Nancy Pelosi wields the knife and I would say she couldn't have a firmer grip on the handle On today's show, more spilling about Nancy, Donald, and shutdowns. No Afghanistan for you, lady. But first, they show up as a funny cat hanging in there. Or success kid. Or a boyfriend who's distracted. Or Homer Simpson disappearing into a bush. They seem cute. And then we get Brexit or Bolsonaro. Or some other real-world electoral disaster that frankly seems incommensurate with that cute little computerized combo of text and pics. Aha! Aha! This my friends is how we go from memes to movements as analyzed in our forthcoming discussion with Ann Mina. So Anjali Mina is a thinker and an artist who talks about technology and talks about the internet and writes about it. And I read something that she wrote in The Economist where she was pointing out that more than, say, rhetoric or even TV ads, memes, memes are holding sway over politics. And I said, true, true, as far as it goes. And then her book hit my desk and has this great cover. There's a llama. There's a kitten looking over the cover. The name of the book is Memes to Movements, How the World's Most Viral Media is Changing Social Protest and Power. And I said to myself, what a just captivating visual. I'm going to dive into this book. And then I realized, hours into it, I got meme. didn't I? The visual, <laughs> the fast twitch muscle visual is the thing that got me enthralled. So of course I had to have her on. Hello. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks so much for having me here, Mike. Tell me
0: how you come to this, mostly as someone who was looking at protest and the usefulness of the internet to give marginalized people their voice?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it, it really is grounded in my interest in just creativity and social media. Um, I, I used to live in New York and uh, did a lot of social media art performances, I explored how people did creative expression on social media. Um, but then it got really interesting when I started to see how how marginalized, disempowered people were then using that same kind of um, affordances and power um, to to advocate for themselves and and shape uh, um, both national and international media narratives
0: are there any stark differences between the use of memes and the internet for information versus disinformation
1: um you know what's really striking is yeah um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved in both I'm involved in research um, you know with the book is specifically around activism especially progressives and anti-authoritarian movements and then disinformation and what you see is actually a very striking similarity in how um, how influence is achieved online. Um, uh, Claire Warlin and Hossein Darakshan uh, produced a report called "Information Disorder" for the Council of Europe, and they noted that disinformation operates based on strong emotions, repetition, strong visuals, mm-hmm. um, the ability to to disseminate information across networks. And I said, "Wait a minute, that's a lot of how meme culture works more generally." Yeah, um, and the the larger theme of the book is that memes have power. And memes can influence people and so I think it's really really important that researchers that people in media engage with it understand it um, and um, you know really dive into how it works because if you're not engaging on it you're basically ceding the meme territory to anyone else who wants to be utilizing it
0: right so if you're um, an anti uh, fascist government protester we don't want your meme to be your doctrine right maybe you could point someone to what you believe but it can usefully get the word out but if if you're also working for if you're fancy bear or cozy bear working for the IRA the the russian version um the meme could do the same thing in a much more pernicious way.
1: That's right. And, yeah. and I think, you know, your point about the book cover is, is a great example. Um, you know, we, we, we have learned over time not to judge a book by its cover, yeah. to engage, uh, to look at who else is talking about it, who is the author behind it, what are their motivations, who is the publisher, what is the person actually saying. And in some ways, we need a new kind of memetic literacy um, for this age um, to, to understand messages by their meme cover.
0: Right. So, if you were to teach a course on this, deconstructing the meme, what would you tell us to look for?
1: I, I, you know, in the book, I dive into a few things. One is the the kind of form, the visuals of it. What is the what are the old symbologies that this meme is drawing from? Um, what are the cultural tropes that it's it's uh, it's kind of pulling at? And what are the emotions it's trying to sell? Um, and then secondly is also the narrative um what is the narrative it's building yeah um how does it how is it part of a larger media discourse, and so um, is it how in what way is it trying to influence you and um influence us, and even more specifically, which networks is it really resonating in? um who is the audience in this kind of world of many different types of audiences? um we have to we need a more complex understanding of who audiences can be because they can be anyone
0: okay, so that would be good. Um, Let me take them maybe one by one or a couple of parts of that. It does seem that a lot of memes that are shared can be used for good or ill. Like you have the, it's, it's a big screenshot and kind of, Big words and big bubbles words are yeah, around around. Yeah, image right. macro. Image macro. That's a type right? of very popular
1: type of meme. So I've
0: seen 100 with the most interesting man in the world, Dosekis, yeah, right? That's right. And you could label that something to the right, something to the left, something that's this great truth that needs to be said, or something that's this huge lie. Yep. So then how do I. Go about that first thing that you said with with understanding the typography, understanding yeah, where it comes from. Yeah. It can be applied to anything. They're very malleable.
1: Yeah, they are very malleable, and that's what makes it really tricky. And because yeah. especially because they move so fast, and that they can be shared and understood in different communities in different ways. And so so you take a look at that image, you understand what is the meme culture it's a part of, right? Um, the Dos Equis meme, right? It's it's part of this larger like advertising ecosystem, part of a larger meme about um, about masculinity, about right. about um, about how um, you know what is what it means to be interesting. And then you look at the text itself, um, and uh, and often you know in, in kind of west and this is interesting because image macros are most common in American and Western meme culture. Um, so you look at that, you look at the font, you look at the story it's trying to tell, and then what are the values it's projecting, um, and how is it resonating? Um, how many likes and retweets and shares is it getting? It's hard to do that. I want. To, I want to note, note that it's really hard to do that. But that is how you understand and, and deep deep dive into these memes, and that's what I do in the book.
0: But it seems to me that what the thing that Twitter can do is they could let anyone publish a meme, but if it's very clickable, they could give you the stats about where mm-hmm. this is popular from. Yes. So if it was, you know, the the. Summer of 2016, you saw this stupid frog that you didn't know what he meant. But if you clicked on the stats and you saw the circle of where this mm-hmm. was coming from, that might alert you that Pepe is not benign.
1: I think you know there's, there's, it's a really important point. I think a lot of the Internet right now is designed to take away context from right. um, from everything that's online. Um, and sometimes that's useful. Um, but uh, so much of journalism is specifically about bringing context to work, right to to messages, to what's out there. And I think platforms have a more important role to play in in bringing back context. Uh, they've been so focused on making things easy to use to to um, and, you know the whole design ethos of of don't make me think. Maybe we should bring back some uh, design thinking that that encourages people to to understand the context in which memes circulate.
0: Yeah. I mean, context uh, is always good. It's always something to embrace. I don't know that the ecosystem, I don't know that the financial incentives are there. Sure, the New York Times, the Washington Post, two or three players Mm -hmm. who probably get paid attention to Mm -hmm. by the people who are already paying attention to everyone else. I'm trying to think, you know, will will the nightly news... Cover a meme and tell you what it means so that our parents or frightened grandparents understand it. Will, I don't know who else out there can step in and become a different organism than they have been before? Because it seems like that's what you're saying. We we know that yeah. the New York Times is going to provide context. Will Reddit do that? Will BuzzFeed do that? You know, will the new purveyors of information do that?
1: That's the big challenge, the big question of today. I think you've nailed it, though. I think it's the, the attention economy is part of what's driving the the lack of context, right? Um, yeah. The, the fact that strong emotions um, drive a lot of what gets us to stay on the internet, um, it gets us to engage, and therefore gives uh, gives data that, that then supports an ad model it is largely incentivized for emotion for reaction and so uh, without a deeper understanding of the business model, um, especially around the attention economy, um, it's going to be really hard uh, to incentivize um, bringing context into into our internet experiences.
0: You, uh, as, I, as you trace, you know, your interest in this, you do a lot of work with uh, the protesters against or activists against the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you get into that?
1: Yes, yeah, so, um, it was uh, back in uh, 2011. I had uh, the chance to work uh, uh, at uh, the studio of Ai Weiwei, um, working on an exhibition in Korea that he was curating. Um, and, uh, but as a result, I was around a lot of the um, activism um, and that's actually what got me interested in this topic, because they were using memes um, to evade censorship, uh, to shape international narratives about, about what was happening in China. And I just found that such an interesting um, experience that I decided to to really dive in uh, more deeply into, into this.
0: In this cat and mouse game, this uh, kitten on a treadmill and mouse game, <laughs> is the Chinese government good at suppressing memes online? I mean, we don't want to pat them on the back and say, good job, but are they effective in their goals?
1: Steadily getting much more and more effective, so... Back in 2011, the mechanisms of censorship were um, were humans um, and algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, keyword search terms specifically. And so, if you tried to say the word "iwayway" on Chinese social media, um, it it could easily be suppressed because it's easy to find that. And so, what activists did is that they used images. Uh, they remixed his name. I um, they mean,
0: they're, they're sort of codes, codes. essentially. That's yeah. exactly But right. the Chinese language yeah. or the different Chinese languages uh, allow this, probably more than English. Yeah, it allowed yeah. for
1: a certain type of remix, right? Yeah, yeah, And it's a tonal language, so you change tones, you change meanings. And so it is part of a long history of punning in, in Chinese language as well. So, uh, so people are just able to mix and remix. Yeah. Um, over time— uh, the government has hired many more censors, um, um, has improved its algorithms, and and even more importantly, as a research by Gary King at Harvard has really found, is that uh, they're actually employing people to shape discourse online.
0: So I think of it as, yes, they give rise to, or they give voice to marginalized groups, but then what happens is, all groups see the effectiveness mm-hmm. and maybe they even begin to see themselves as marginalized. Mm-hmm. So now white supremacists are doing the same things that Ai Weiwei did. Mm-hmm. Um, you write, interestingly, about Uganda, which I know some things about. I, had a, I have a friend who set up uh, early Ugandan uh, networks. Okay. And I think you write mostly positively about hashtag Kony 2012. So if, yeah, okay. to remind people, he was the warlord who used children, soldiers, and terrible guy. And he was uh, before the docket of the world court. But when things really got rolling with him as an issue, I think the people who were mostly behind the meme or the hashtag were a little also behind the facts. And a lot of money was wasted probably. And I don't know. It just seemed like a big exercise in Possibly good intentions, but nothing actually coming from it. I look at it, I look back at it as more of a uh, kind of an indictment of the limits of this sort of hashtag activism or meme uh, use. But what do you think? Yeah,
1: I think it's a good example of what you just said of, uh, of contextlessness, right? Yeah. That, that the internet um, and meme culture can oversimplify to the point of reducing context. And especially when we're talking about an international context where a country like Uganda, I doubt most people can can really point it out on a map, right? Yeah. Uh, most people in the West, I should say, um, that uh, it's very easy to amplify a narrative or a trope that um, that oversimplifies a very complex situation. And so in the book, I, I dive into that one and another hashtag that appeared that very same year, um, which was hashtag Uganda is not Spain. Yeah. And the reason I, I look at those two is that one came from people in Uganda Uganda, um, Uganda is not Spain. In response to an oversimplification, um, the Prime Minister of Spain, uh, during the economic crisis, had had texted, um, I believe, his finance minister um, and said, "You know, don't worry, it'll be okay. Spain is not Uganda." When word got out, uh, Ugandans took to social media, um, led by Rosebel Kagamira, who's a journalist there. And I started tweeting out facts about why Uganda is is not Spain. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: they were doing a little better than Spain by many measures. Yeah, yes. that's right. So,
1: so you had this uh, these contrasting these two hashtags as a case study and how um, both um, you can oversimplify a story from the outside, um, but then also how that oversimplification can then be challenged through hashtag culture um, by by the very people affected by that oversimplification.
0: Other than getting into and knowing as much as you can about the underlying facts, were there hallmarks? Could some and look at those memes and say you know Kony 2012 raises some red flags whereas there are hallmarks there are aspects to the Uganda is not Spain trend that maybe spoke more positively about it yeah,
1: yeah this gets to the other thing about meme cultures understanding where they're coming from right right and and so when you dig into Kony 2012 you see that the, the organization is coming from San Diego and yes they've done work in Uganda but um, it's a very different perspective than a uh, literally journalists in Uganda who are who are trying to respond to international discourse. And so um, so I do think you still need to dive in. You still need to understand the context. Um, and I spoke with Ugandan researchers to prep for that chapter because I, I certainly don't fully understand the context. But as a starting point, it uh, it's, again goes back to the networks. Where are these circulating? Who is pushing the story? And uh, what might be their uh, motivations?
0: And in Uganda, it's not cats. It's goats that are... The, the cute animal, the go-to.
1: That appears to be, yeah, that's right. I uh, chatted um, with uh, folks from Urban Legend, Kampala, it's a humor site, and, <laughs> and, and Ugandan youth in Kampala, the capital. And I was showing them the, you know, the cats, right? I was showing them cat, cat memes from China and the United States. And they said, oh, that's, that's interesting. They, they didn't really respond. And over time, I started to realize, well, I was, you know, I was there for three, three months. And uh, I didn't see cats around but I saw a lot of amazing goats, and they're very funny creatures. And so it's like, oh, that's why they like goats so much.
0: They are, but I've read a pretty compelling explanation of the appeal of cats is that they're ambush predators, so mm. they have quick jump actions, mm-hmm. and this is really good for a two- or three-second video. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if goats are that quick.
1: Well, have you seen the fainting goat memes? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they, they, are quirky, they go down in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are quirky creatures. They are. Yeah.
0: Do you know what I think is going to save us from the memes? What will save us? Podcasts.
1: Podcasts. They're the... Yeah.
0: <laughs> opposite in so many ways. Mm-hmm. They're great for dissent. Mm-hmm. You get into you get into uh, disagreements, but yeah. in a in a good way. Yeah, yeah. You could serve a niche community. Right. They're complex. Yeah. Also, you can ignore it, but then you're not. Actually, imbibing the information, you know, like right. with memes, right. twelve could flash across your vision, and maybe you absorb two. With podcasts, you go in and you <laughs> seek it out. I think yeah. I think podcasts will save us all.
1: I, right. I would agree with that, and and the fact that we can have this in-depth conversation, right? That it's not about the sound bites; it's about the the dialogue. Yeah. Um, but how do you get attention for the podcast? How do how do people come to learn about it? Um, in so many you need, ways, you need a um, crazy
0: cat video. You need, you need yeah. a cat video, right? You need, you need a goat fainting.
1: Yep. You <laughs> need some way to to engage people and attract them to that conversation. So if we think of them as the beginning of a discourse, um, in some ways, they in some, maybe they can be helpful. And Chow
0: Mina is the author of Memes to Movements. Great last name, by the way. On point.
1: Thank you. Mina, memes. I'm <laughs> Me- Mima, yeah, sometimes memes. people say. <laughs> yeah.
0: Memes to Movements, how the world's most viral media is changing social protests and power. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. now the spiel. Donald Trump today struck out against Nancy Pelosi's plan to travel abroad, denying her use of a military aircraft and the protection it entails. It is unclear if he could technically do this. It seems so. He is the commander-in-chief. Let us assume he can. Okay, what did Donald Trump prevent? He prevented Nancy Pelosi from leaving America while Americans at least some of them who work for the federal government, are desperate to get pay. Imagine the Breitbart headlines if she had left. Nightwing Nancy or Fox coverage of Pelosi as she breezes through security while regular Americans have to wait in line. Jeanine Pirro, remember, was so intent on smearing Pelosi with dereliction of duty that she reported with disgust that the Speaker have been spending some time in actually another part of the United States. Nancy Pelosi's in Hawaii over the holidays. Now she's in Puerto Rico with a bunch of Democrats and lobbyists, uh, uh, you know, enjoying the sun and partying down there. And that report, by the way, wasn't even accurate. But now the truth is that Nancy Pelosi wants to go to Brussels and Egypt and Afghanistan, and Trump is there to deny any possible parapetations. What? Nancy Pelosi might be saying. I can't go to Afghanistan. No, Mr. President. No, let me go to Afghanistan. I need some me time at that one spa they have in Kandahar. Please, Mr. President, please let me have this Afghani jaunt if only for the suppression of free radicals. And I don't mean the Taliban. My combination skin, it's acting up. The Taliban, as you remember, formed to resist the very lawful and invited presence of the Soviet Union, who are perfectly right to accept their host's invitation. This is the theory as proposed by two sources, Donald Trump and Sputnik News. And we can't in any way rebut or fact check those theories, because Nancy Pelosi will not be in Afghanistan. Donald Trump was obviously upset that Pelosi had taken away his opportunity to speak before Congress during the State of the Union, Congress and the Senate. But what would he do? I was wondering about this. What would he do? What would be the counter move? You know, in chess circles, we might call this this opening the Queen's Gambit declined. But lo, Ed Henry of Fox suggests the president may have had an opening all his own. Some of the president's advisors tonight whispering maybe he should break with tradition, deliver his State of the Union on his own terms. Since the Constitution says a speech can be sent in writing to Congress, then the president could turn around and deliver those written remarks from, say, the Oval Office or maybe even the southern border with the Border Patrol and ICE. Remember, he just visited there instead of Capitol Hill on January 29th. Those scenarios being dangled as Pelosi's gambit appears to be backfiring a bit. Backfiring. Because if the president speaks from a patch of dirt a few thousand miles from the actual seat of power before an audience of border patrol agents, a couple of coyotes, meaning both the animals and the human traffickers, and I don't know, maybe some kids from the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich, Connecticut, because you always got to have the Boys and Girls Club of Greenwich, Connecticut for a speech that is sure to achieve your aims. If he speaks before this assemblage instead of, say, the Supreme Court, both houses of Congress— the military, in all their regalia, then I guess he will have owned Nancy. (laughs) He'll go to the border, which he has been dubbing the very unsafe border, and that will project strength and prestige and oh, so much one-upsmanship. And on CNN, Van Jones will finally say this was the day that Donald Trump became president of a Jeff Ross roast special. Who do you think is hurt more at the core, at the very fundamental core of what drives them? Nancy Pelosi denied a trip to a war zone for a war that she has no way to stop, for a war that has proved endless and maybe even embarrassingly so to her, because if you look at the record, she voted for this war, as every member of Congress except Barbara Lee did. So saying Nancy Pelosi can't go and revel in that... Versus Donald Trump being denied standing at the lectern where every president since Woodrow Wilson was and enjoying all the trappings of office. I'm going to say Trump likes trappings, which might be good because Pelosi seems to now have him trapped. I was really wondering if the Republicans would come up with any cunning counteroffensive. Cunning like a fox, as opposed to the type of cunning as interpreted by Fox, which is not cunning at all, just a dumb idea that gets called clever. Or pretending a pretty good idea from Nancy Pelosi is backfiring when it really is boxing in the president. I remember when Trump's charity was shut down a few, seems like millennia, weeks ago by the Attorney General of New York. And I said to myself, huh, I wonder how savvy the Trump PR team is, whatever the Trump PR team is. I guess now we've learned it's a fake Michael Cohen is easy on the eyes account and the ghost of Hope Hicks. But I'd have figured that someone on Team Trump would have come up with some sympathetic figure who the Trump Foundation helped, and that person would do the rounds of media, even like-minded media, and say something like, you know, without the help of Mr. Trump and this foundation, I'd be worse off. I don't know. I'd not have had the healing powers of Tim Tebow's helmet to help me along, but just something. But they did nothing. There was no counter-narrative in the media. They couldn't get their acts together to do that. And instead, months later, they come up with this idea. No Afghanistan and no Brussels for you, Nancy. It is enough to get a president branded this. This is the president essentially being a man baby (laughs) all over again. As Michigan Representative Dan Kildee called him, the president is a man baby. That is not nice. And I wonder if the president will now attempt to downgrade Representative Kildee from business class to coach on Spirit Airlines this weekend. And that's it for today's show. Pierre and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They've scheduled a trip home tonight. They're going to take the C train to the G, transfer at Hoyt. Oh, but no! It's been canceled! Shutdown? Yes. Federal shutdown? No just the Hoyt Street Station for maintenance. These are the real human costs, people. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate podcasts. She wants us all to know that peripatetism is not a word, but should be. The gist. Tune in next time for the adventures of Baby Man, the superhero who transforms instantly into a nine-month-old, thwarting crime through tantrums, distractibility, and helplessness. That is the plan anyway. The evil empress holds the knife. Can Babyman stop her nefarious plans? Oh, no. At the last minute, Babyman is joined by first daughter, the brush stash, and introducing Stephen Miller as the weasel. Join us next time on Babyman. Boomparoo, dapperoo, doo and thanks for listening.